HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. Today's program is brought to you by Corin, a supplier of Japanese chef knives and restaurant supplies. For more information, visit Corin.com. Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at HearstRanch.com. You're listening to Fields, the podcast. I'm Wythe Marshall. And I'm Melissa Metric. On Fields, we're bringing you the stories of people who are working in the world of urban agriculture. For money, for fun, for art, for justice, to feed the hungry, to green the city, or to uncover its history. In each episode of Fields, we'll delve into one kind of food that's grown in cities, one technology used to grow, or one project that teaches us something about our relationship to farming in urban environments. Moreover, we'll investigate all the whys behind getting up in the morning and working as a farmer in the city today. You don't need to be a farmer to enjoy this podcast, or even a foodie. We're going to tell fascinating stories and break down the realities and possible futures of urban farming to their elements. Hey, welcome. Uh, You're listening to Fields, the unfinished story of urban agriculture on Heritage Radio uh, Network. I'm Wythe Marshall, and usually I'm here with Melissa Metric from NYU. Uh, She's feeling a little under the weather, so um, I'm going to be doing this one solo. Uh, regardless, we have an amazing guest, uh, Vicky Sando. Uh, and Vicky, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate you taking the time. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Uh, I appreciate it too. Great. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, we, we were just saying, um, we met this summer, uh, actually at the Kingsland wildflower, uh, festival, uh, with the, the Audubon society and other groups that are focused on uh, Newtown Creek in that area. Um, not too far from where I live in Astoria, Queens, um, and where I used to live in, in Bushwick, Brooklyn. Uh, and it's a really wonderful green roof. So it makes sense that, of course, you were there with a book, uh, which I have right here. What is a green roof? Um, so I'm sure you do many other things, but that is one reason why we thought we'd have you on, which is to talk about green roofs. It's a subject um, that we've covered a bit on fields. We had a scientist at the end of our last season, uh, season three, Mike Treglia from the Green Roof Research Alliance uh, and other Nature Conservancy and other appointments, um, talking about some research in New York City on green roofs. And I thought, you know, this is kind of a different direction, sort of how do we talk about green roofs, um, what groups are interested. And especially I remember, you know, you were talking about working with schools. And I know there's so many schools in New York City, and I imagine around the country, who are uh, creating green roofs and in general engaging in sort of urban agriculture, horticulture, teaching kids about plants, uh, getting out there and having fun in the sun, even though we're in the middle of sort of uh, polluted heat island. So um, I thought, you know, we take the time to to sort of chat about all those subjects and and more. 
Um, but before we begin, why don't you sort of introduce yourself and, and let us know, um, Vicki, where, where are you coming from? Sure. So um, I'm a science and STEM teacher at PS41, uh, the Greenwich Village School. And I got my start on this journey um, actually when my children went to school there themselves. Um, they're in their 20s now, so I'm dating myself a little bit. Uh, but when my son was in kindergarten, um, they were studying plants and they weren't gardening anywhere. There was no garden. It was a blacktop middle yard. Um, so I offered to build some planter boxes. I'm kind of still not sure why I built them and just didn't buy them, but I built them <laughs> in my basement and uh, took them over to the school. We started build, uh, planting some bulbs and some you know vegetables. And it was just so well received. It really just showed the power of gardening where it transformed the space um, into this little beautiful o- oasis. Um, I ended up then getting some grants, um, just kept um, adding to it. Uh, we got a little mini greenhouse. It got to the point that where my custodial engineer was like, okay, you need to stop because this is really getting a little overboard. Um, so then that made me think about our massive rooftop, uh, which – Nobody went up there. It was unoccupied at the time. Um, so the our former principal, but the principal at that time, uh, Kelly Shannon, um, I approached her about it, and she was totally in favor of it. Um, fortunately, back then, we really didn't know what we were getting ourselves into. Um, just a little bit naive. <laughs> uh, but that worked in our favor because it ended up being a six year project. Um, it was, so we started in 2004 with designing it. Uh, we assembled a great team of some parents, um, connections that parents had. Uh, so we worked with a project management team, Jonathan Rose. Um, we were really smart where we originally, we were going to wanted to put a farm up there. We wanted to add a greenhouse and, uh, you know, do urban agriculture. Um, but the weight load of the roof would not support that. Uh, we ended up doing, um, or commissioning a engineering study, a site engineering study. And we, it was determined that while we couldn't, uh, do urban agriculture, we could put in an extensive green roof. So we went in that direction. Um, and it's roughly 18,000 square feet. Um, so again, it took six years, uh, of fundraising, construction, planning. It was the first official green roof by, uh, school construction authority. Um, So if you don't know about them, uh, they basically build new schools and they are in charge of any major capital improvement projects on school buildings. So they're a different entity, uh, than the department than uh, New York City schools, but that's what they're in charge of. So we had to work through them. We had to get grants from our local officials. Um, So it cost about $2.5 million, uh, not cheap, Um, but most of that money went for the infrastructure, making it accessible for students and safe for students. The greening of the roof was the cheapest, if you want to call it that, part of the project. Um, so the rooftop opened in 2012 and, um, I mean, it was, it was 
what was so amazing about it was immediately it was a wildlife habitat. Uh, birds and insects came, um, and then students just loved going up there. They still do. Um, so we use it more as an outdoor classroom uh, for science. It's a research platform. Our art teacher just took students up there to paint the skyline. Um, and then during COVID, it was used nonstop as a place for kids to just get, get outside of their classroom. Um, I know our counselor takes children up there if they need an emotional break. Um, so it's really a, um, used in numerous ways. And then when it's not being used by students, it's had a significant impact on the school's energy use. Um, our energy use, I just checked um, Portfolio Manager Energy Star, and I can go in there and see uh, the decline of CO2 emissions. And again, our energy use um, has gone down significantly. Uh, last year, it was reduced by 25%. That's great. Uh, the prior year, so it's, it's really a year behind. So the prior year it was like 38%. So I was actually, I just did a presentation um, at a Green Roof event, Green Roof conference. And I was kind of wondering like, why did it actually seem to go up a bit? And then I realized the 38% drop was during COVID. So that was when there was remote uh, teaching. So students weren't in the building. So that kind of makes sense then where the school's energy use wasn't as uh, much as it is now. Um, so, uh, but besides the energy savings and the CO2 emissions, it um, reduces stormwater runoff. Green roofs act like a sponge and slow water down during uh, rainstorms. Um, it reduces heat island effect. So plants give off water vapor. So it cools the uh, school down and then the surrounding community, uh, reduces noise. I mean, there's just multiple benefits that the Green Roof provides besides being an outdoor classroom. So um, back to myself. Um, so once my son graduated, I had uh, I was actually kind of volunteer teaching at the time. Uh, so the school created a position for me and I went and got my master's. Uh, so I've been teaching there um, since 2012. And yeah, it's so volunteering. You never know what <laughs> volunteering can do for you. Right. <laughs> it can get you a new career. <laughs> so so to recap, so basically you started volunteering because you were interested in um, the possibility of, of a farm on a roof. And what ended up happening was the six-year-long project that cost millions of dollars and is extensive. So, so like a sedum roof, not a farm, but but with plants on it. Um, but it led you down this path of learning all about the ins and outs of green roofs and eventually even sort of a new career um, in um, teaching, but also, you know, uh, sort of becoming an activist around green roofs. Is that is that fair to say? Yes. Yes. So I would say um, absolutely. Um, since our green roof opened, uh, I've tried to help. I don't know how many schools I've given tours for as well. Um it's, it's, it's a challenging process, to be honest. And schools have come to me uh, looking for guidance. Uh, so this kind of led me into, um, besides my teaching, uh, developing a book, uh, What is a Green Roof, which you had mentioned earlier. And that was really uh, because there was no literature out there, uh, kid-friendly, about what green roofs are. People get confused because 
they think containers on the roof are a green roof, but um, planters, it, it's separate. Green roofs mm-hmm. are actually uh, planted directly onto the roof membrane with different layers uh, that uh, protect the roof and, and uh, filter water out. So it's, it's a multi-layer. It's like a sandwich, if you basically think of it that way. Yeah, um, and it makes so, sense to help them think about the idea of um, – there are different technologies, basically. There's different options. There's not like one correct thing. You can't treat every roof the same, um, but that there's a number of options that people could consider when, um, you know, they're building a new building or in this case, right, there's an existing building and, and maybe there's options for making it greener um, and, and here are the sort of advantages and costs. So I think that makes a lot of sense um, to talk about from, you know, an adult perspective, but it's really, I think it's cool that you were then thinking, well, how do we make sure that the kids kind of get it um, were the kids involved with the, the roof that you, the, the, the first big roof you worked on, or was that sort of, you know, they're, they're coming in after like how, how have the kids, I guess, entered into the project and what has their reaction been? Yeah. So, um, originally when we designed the roof, we worked with, uh, Murphy Burnham at Buttrick, um, architect, and we had a teacher focus group of how to design the roof. So it's, um, friendly for teachers and children. Um, we didn't have kids involved in the process because it's an elementary school. Um, right. I've consulted with some high schools where they're actually involved in the designing of it. Um, but for this project, it was really more teacher-centered of how can you manage a classroom up there? Um, can we make different areas where kids can work in groups together? Uh, so it was really more focused on that. Uh, now, when I talk to other schools, they have other ideas. Um, it really depends on what the school culture is. And then even more importantly, what the school, how the school is built. I mean, we have, God, how many schools are in New York City? I think there's like, I'm not going to be accurate, but about 1,500 school buildings from yeah. every different time period um, and different type of structure. So it's not only what you would like to put up there, but what that building can support. So I typically tell um, teachers or school administrators or parents that you might have one idea in mind, but you need to be flexible. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. I just Googled. It looks like there's around 1,800 schools, which is a lot, um, in 1,300 yeah. buildings, because a lot of buildings yeah. now have, you know, a couple smaller schools instead of one big school. So um, right. one reason why, you know, in addition to New York having a cosmopolitan and um, relatively wealthy, you know, taxpaying parent base and all that, um, you know, there's also just a lot of, as you say, architectural diversity you might think about. And um, there are a lot of also architects, right? It's also a place where there are a lot of designers. There's people who are interested in these subjects. So it's sort of interesting that it's become a hotbed where schools and schools have become such a hotbed for urban ag activities and thinking about the design of, of structures. I also think schools, just thinking about my own childhood in Atlanta in the nineties, um, a lot of the buildings were just underused. It's like schools were very big and had a lot of empty spaces. And I worked briefly in a school in New York when I first moved here after, you know, during after college. And, um, I was, I was like the assistant tech guy and we would just constantly get new tech that would just basically go into a closet with a bunch of other, you know, new tech from last year. There were just like old laptops, like everywhere. Um, so I, I feel like some of it is the design of, it's not specific to New York, but like schools in general having kind of weird problems with like, they have to be managed 
so carefully that there ends up being excess capacity that it's almost better to just like, you know, lock the key on and, and turn away from as opposed to having to deal with because you have so many immediate problems, you know, immediate kids to tend to. So I think roofs is just sort of an architectural version of that where it's easy to, to have a building where you just don't use the roof. Um, and obviously you don't want kids going up there and falling off. So it makes sense. Um, but on the other hand, there's this golden opportunity. Um, and as you say, there's different buildings, different different modalities of greening them. So very cool that you you made that um, that jump. Um, was there anything that inspired you? Was there anything like turning point that you remember when you're like, I'm going to do green roofs like this is obsession, you know, <laughs> sort of like a, a model, like anything you saw that, that really got you? Uh, no, I mean, I'll be honest. No, I mean, the only the one memorable uh, thing that sticks out to me is I just remember being in our cafeteria and this was probably around 2009 and we had the architects there. There was like school construction authority members there. There was probably like 15 people there with blueprints and all that. And I'm looking at everything going, holy shit, <laughs> I can't believe this is actually happening. Like this epiphany of this is really going forward. And uh, because it was just so many steps forward and then a step back, um, you know, there was things that came up that were not expected because it was a first. Um, so now what I, you know, I tell other schools that you have to be prepared that this is a multi-year project. And I think some of the challenges are, you know, parents that get involved and then their kid attrition's out of the school, or um, you have a teacher that's really involved but they have a million other things on their plate um, or, you know, you don't have the maintenance staff that's really enthusiastic about it. So there's just so many key players that a project of this magnitude requires. So I always tell um, interested parties that you should need to start with a lower level garden first. If you don't have a, a lower level school garden, that's smaller and see how that works. If that's really successful, then look to your rooftop because this is a massive undertaking. And, and I'm not, I, I want to see many, as many as possible, but start small, get it going, and then take it from there. Right. So, so yeah, definitely don't assume that you're going to do a six year million dollar project, um, at least to start, but maybe it's good to get interest. How, you know, can you tell, tell us about, um, coalition building? I mean, we've talked with growers and people who keep different kinds of spaces for urban agriculture and education to some degree, but in terms of a school, um, I know, you know, again, from Having been a child, um, even though I, I always, you know, had this mustache, uh, so I looked <laughs> old, but, you know, um, and then having worked in one, I mean, it's not just kids who in some ways have like no power, which, um, which sucks when you are a student, but, you know, the parents have a lot of power, I know, and teachers, of course, and really respect teachers. And sometimes maybe they probably don't in all instances, um, especially outside of New York, we're probably pretty lucky here in terms of their, their agency. Um, and then I, I know there's administrators, but you mentioned like the school construction authority, I think it was, but there's also just the, the massive bureaucracy of the DOE. So, so how were you able to move from, Hey, this is a good idea to like legally, um, and really financially we're able to do this because as you, as you pointed out, it's, it's pretty expensive to build a proper, you know, modern 
green roof. Um, and then maybe as a follow-up question, we can come back to like, how do you show, and, and maybe this was part of that coalition building that in the long term it actually can save money or, you know, pay for itself or whatever um, with, as you say, you know, the, the water saving, energy saving, all that stuff. But but what, what are some of the things, who are some of the people you had to charm? How, you know, did the, the kids book come out of that or, you know, take it any way you want, but. Yeah, well, the children's book was many years later. Um, so for this project, I mean, we had to get our elected officials on board. Um, so that was our borough president and city council person. Um, so at that time, it was Scott Stringer and Christine Quinn. And they're the ones that are giving the money to, to for these projects. It's a capital improvement grant. So we had to request money from them. Um, which they, you know, really got behind the project immediately. And then that money goes into the SCA coffers for construction. So any time you do a major renovation on a school building, I mean, it could be a new library or those new laptops you were just mentioning. A school puts in a grant proposal and there's money that's always allocated Um, So again, circling back, I mean, I would say to a school, well, if you need a new library or you need a new science lab, you're going to have conflicting parties that are wanting to do this. I mean, a green roof, it's more like icing on a cake. Um, And so you have to look at what really are the needs in the school community, because you're going to have people that are going to want different things. Uh, Now, I would say, too, PS41 is in Greenwich Village, which is an affluent neighborhood. Uh, and a lot of these big projects on schools were done by parents like myself who had the luxury of time, because I was a stay-at-home mom at the time, uh, to put these volunteer hours in. Uh, unfortunately, schools in communities that have high heat index, high asthma rate, flooding, are perhaps not as fortunate to have parents who are not working. Uh, So then we have to really pressure those elected officials in those communities to fund these projects and have school administrators that get behind it. And I've seen it happen. I mean, I've I've been working with um, a couple schools in Brooklyn who, you know, it's a totally different demographic and these are teachers that are so passionate about sustainability and they have administrators that are behind it and they are trying to put these projects in. So it's less parent driven. It's more school administrators and, and staff. So I think as a city, we need to identify schools that could benefit the most from this. Um, I was just at, um, I was mentioning that I was just at a, presenting at a conference. It was for uh, Green Roofs for Healthy Cities. And it was actually Brooklyn Grange. And uh, another one of the presenters from DEP, uh, Melissa Enrock, uh, she said they've, they've identified 10 schools that are really good candidates for green roofs because of flooding in their communities. Mm. Um, so they're, they're willing to fund it. They're just trying to get SCA on board to actually install these roofs. And what is SEA, the acronym? Uh, I'm sorry, School Construction Authority. Oh, SCA. Got it, got it. Yeah, yeah. Excellent. Today's program is brought to you by Corin, a supplier of Japanese chef knives and restaurant supplies. 
Corin is proud of their Japanese culture and traditions, but they want you to know that their products are not just for Japanese restaurants. Their knives and tableware bring out the best qualities of food from every culture and fit into every restaurant from French to Pan Asian to American. And that is why they're located in New York City, where people from every country in the world come to eat. Corin's Tribeca showroom is home to the most extensive collection of Japanese chef knives in the world, including Japan. Stop by to view their exquisitely designed tableware and the rarest natural sharpening stones. They have a whole range of knife services from repair and rust removal to reshaping and realigning. Corin is dedicated to this ideal, bringing the highest quality Japanese design to your table so you can experience the unparalleled quality of Japanese craftsmanship in your home or restaurant. For more information, visit Corin.com. Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. The Hearst family has been raising cattle on the rich, sustainable native grasslands of California's Central Coast for over 150 years. Piedra Blanca Rancho in San Simeon is the original Hearst Ranch, founded by George Hearst in 1865. George's son was the famous publisher, William Randolph Hearst. In addition to being known for building the iconic Hearst Castle, William was, like his father before him, an avid rancher. In his words, I would rather spend a month at the ranch than any place in the world. Thanks to one of the largest land conservation easements in California history, a joint effort with the California Rangeland Trust, the American Land Conservancy, and the state of California, the working landscape at Hearst Ranch will be preserved forever. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at hearstranch.com. I was going to ask, I'm sure you, you know about... Um Brooklyn Grange and many others, but you know, I'm curious how now, as a professional, you've kind of interacted with with different people in the Green Roof, you know, extended cinematic universe. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, that makes sense. So it's like an internal granting program here in New York, at least, and probably functions a little differently in other parts of the country. But probably there are monies at, at the city or, or state level, and schools compete for them and for different uses. And probably the different uses within the school compete. So there might be coalitions, you know, advocating for the new library versus the new laptops or whatever. So it makes sense that the green roof would have to be explained internally first as, as one of those possible improvements. Um, and then it might be tied, as you say, to like, what are the best candidates and where are the most urgent cases? Um, so I'm glad that that's, that's a framing that we could use some sort of a climate justice framing. Like who are the people who um, have historically not, you know, have, have lived in areas that are uh, underinvested in and, and who could benefit the most from having kind of green infrastructure s- sooner. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm really glad that you're, you're actively involved. Um, so can you tell us a bit about um, the, the book? So, you know, you, you wrote this uh, great book and it's illustrated, I see, by uh, Z. Lahar. Um, and I was just curious how you, how and when you decided to write a book, um, why, you know, a children's book, why, you know, illustrated very lushly and how you went about sort of research and designing this, this to try to appeal and, and presumably educate, right? Um, yeah. So, um, when I would talk to different people and children, you know, as a teacher, um, uh, you're always looking for books to read. And I was integrating uh, green roof lessons into my curriculum. And there was no children's book out there that really talked about green roofs. There was a couple books that I found that would mention it in passing, you know, more like architecture, uh, books about architecture. Uh, But there was nothing specific to it. So I thought, well, why not write one? Again, having no idea how hard it was (laughs) and how how long it took. Um, 
So I originally, well, and uh, Z is actually a former student at PS41. She graduated with my daughter. She's an amazing illustrator. You can find her on Instagram under Moon Milk is her handle. Um, so I knew immediately that I wanted to work with her. And um, having a family member in who is an author, I knew how challenging it was to find representation and publishing, all that stuff. Um, so I just said, we're going to self-publish it. Um, so we learned how to do it. It's published on Amazon. Um, and it got some, actually some really great reviews. Um, the one downside is releasing it two weeks before a pandemic is, is, uh, is out there. So, you know, it was a bit of a hamper. Um, but the nice thing, since it is um, self-published, which somebody actually reminded me, um, I really wasn't thinking about, they just said, well, your book will live on as long as you want it up there. It's not like um, through a traditional publishing house where they're like, okay, your sales are not good enough, so we're not going to release a third edition. So it lives on there. And um, ironically, I found the book, is actually uh, very helpful for adults because a lot of adults don't know what green roofs are. So um, I've given many copies away, uh, whether to legislators or stakeholders or people that are interested, just so the knowledge is out there. And another thing I'm really proud about the book is the green roofs featured are all based in New York City. So it's very, I love New York green roofs, uh, children's book. Right. And that, and I think that's um, one reason I, I think it's interesting because it's not, it doesn't feel dumbed down, you know, as far as children's books goes, it's more like an illustrated guide, just intro guide to green roofs. Um, and yeah, I, th I think um, there's plenty of other media out there, but a very affordable, appealing, you know, well, well-produced book is something nice you can, you can have and you can use in different settings. So, um, so yeah, what was, uh, what was some of the research, you know, where, where were some places that you went in addition to the green roof you helped build initially? Um, and, and, or I guess it's just a, you know, follow on what are, what are some projects that you've been inspired by since, um, first getting involved? You know, I mean, you mentioned Brooklyn Grange, what are some other groups in the city that are doing great work? Um, and have you had a chance to go check out green roofs, you know, in other, other places around the U S yeah. So, um, I would highlight, um, uh, definitely the New York green roof researchers Alliance. Um, I'm the education chair of that group and it's a, really amazing consortium of scientists, um, educators, uh, New York city officials. And, um, there's a, they have a website and it really, uh, shows the latest research and data. Mm. Uh, they help with policy. Uh, there's new, you know, local law 97, which uh, requires any new buildings have either solar or green roofs on them. And that was a that was um, legislation that was really pushed by the Researchers Alliance. Um, so uh, they're really at the forefront of what's going on in New York. Um, and then um, one of my favorite green roofs is Kingsland Wildflowers, mm -hmm. uh, which is out uh, where you were, where we met. And uh, they often give tours. Um, that's a research station as well, um, as well as the Javits Center. And that's really run by New York Audubon, um, Dustin Partridge. Uh, he is uh, the lead researcher there. And they've just done tremendous work uh, 
seeing how uh, green roofs are habitats and um, monitoring bird species, whether it's migratory or local, bat populations. So there is a lot of research being done in New York um, on these rooftops. And, and then I would say, too, if you have not been to the Javits Center, you can, um, I think it's a very minimal fee to get a tour, but they just opened a massive orchard and working farm in partnership with uh, Brooklyn Grange. Um, so um, I think a lot of their events, I guess during the summer months, but they use food harvested from the roof. Uh, but it really just shows, again, the potential of these massive rooftops that are in our city and how we can green them to just combat our climate emergency. I mean, this is one component. Yeah, yeah, for sure. No, Melissa and I have been up there and um, had, uh, you know, Ben Flanner from Brooklyn Grange on at the beginning of the last season. So, you know, again, this is kind of continuing uh, this thread. Um, and, uh, yeah, I definitely recommend if folks are visiting the city and are able to take a tour of the Javits Center, um, green roofs, there's, there's, there's the big one with Sedum and there's the Brooklyn Grange site, which has, you know, a greenhouse and has a, um, this, this food forest, which is, is really interesting on, on the top of this big convention center, um, in an unlikely area. Um, so in terms of climate, um, what do you think is next? Have you seen, uh, you know, are, are there good signals either in New York or in other cities for, for more political support, um, or maybe businesses like Javits, you know, who want green roofs? Um, has there been a big uptick? What, what are, what's the latest news? You know, anything you can share either positive or negative that we should sort of know about, you know, what's going on with green roofs? Well, I mean, I would say, um, plan, uh, YC that came out over the summer, um, really has a, significant focus on climate. Uh, it actually, for the first time, mentions education, uh, which is lacking in um, teaching, you know, in schools. Um, I'm a member of the Climate and Resiliency Education Task Force, uh, which is, again, a terrific group of uh, educators, uh, nonprofits, uh, And they've been working to change state legislation to we're we're backing away a little bit from mandating um, climate education because teachers do not want to hear another mandate, um, but offering uh, schools and educators climate lessons that integrate into current curriculum. Uh, Currently in the United States, children get less than two hours a year on specific climate education, which is really appalling, uh, even though they want it and they're demanding it and they need it. Um, So that's something that in New York City, uh, in New York State, we've been working on just to improve that. And that does circle back to green infrastructure, urban agriculture, um, all these, um, I think, different ways we can think uh, in the future of how we grow our food, whether it's hydroponics, whether it is urban farming, um, and h- how we can give our children these tools to really uh, combat the direction that we're going in, which is going to impact them the most. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's. I, I hear you that teachers don't like mandates, but it does feel like if you're going to mandate anything, you know, more climate awareness um, and more awareness of really tools even just around adaptation. It's like, it, it will become, 
at some point nonpartisan in the sense that um, we're all going to have to deal with with you know the effects of climate disruption. Um, and, yeah, I do give know. I do give New Jersey credit. They beat us on this one because it is mandated in New Jersey, so they've upped us. So we need to like yeah you know, get back and <laughs> compete with New Jersey. Yeah, yeah, I know, and it's a good it's good to have some some healthy competition there, and that maybe that makes sense. Maybe New Jersey's a little more. Um, homogeneous in terms of, you know, um, the, the politics county to county, whereas New York has such a strong, you know, upstate downstate divide and whatnot. Yeah. But, but, uh, it's interesting to think about, you know, what, what is going to be effective? Um, you know, for one, there's still basic research happening, which we talked a little bit with about with, with Mike Treglia. Um, and, you know, again, we encourage folks, uh, just as we did uh, at the end of last season to check out the Green Roof Research Alliance and, and look at the data that you all are, are working on publishing. Um, and, and really collecting, because I think there's a lot of just basic research to be done. But, you know, there, there are scientific questions, engineering questions around, like, what modalities make sense in what context and what's kind of cheapest way to um, reduce, you know, the burden of, of keeping buildings cool in the summer and, and warm in the winter, um, and especially deal with stormwater runoff and all, all these other benefits that green roofs can offer. Um, but, of course, they can be very costly, as you're pointing out. You know, like $2 million for a non-farm roof on a school is, is sounds like a lot of money to me. But, you know, I, I don't know. They're, who knows? Um, but I think. Well, I would just add too the reason why it's so expensive is because students are going up there, and mm, you have to mm-hmm. pay the certificate of occupancy. So I've been really stress- stressing now, for better or for worse, that you're green. You're putting installing green roofs on schools, and maybe there's some roofs that students do not have access to. Got uh, it. Whether it's being they can view it from a window. Or there's a smaller roof that they can access because they will want to put in an elevator. I mean, you have to follow um, um, uh, accessibility laws when you're changing the certificate of occupancy. So um, that's one way to get around it. And then the cost will be so much less. So although even though I would love for every student to go up and visit a green roof, if we want to install as many as possible, we have to think differently and have some that just are there just for viewing. And maybe, um, you know, you have a, a model where you're demonstrating it. I did see today, actually, there's a new school in Staten Island. I do not remember the name of it, but it's being built by SCA. And the rendering has two green roofs on it. So I was Great. so pleasantly surprised. Uh, but again, it doesn't look like they're accessible, but they're lower level roofs where the windows look onto them. So if that's what we have to do, we got to do that. Yeah, that makes sense. So you could also think about, um, t- I mean, one of the, the modality things that we can consider is not just um, the different levels of inten- extensive or intensive you know, forms of, of growing, but also right, um, different levels of access. And so everything will need to be accessible, um, for folks with different mobility, um, issues, but also, uh, you know, maybe it makes sense to limit the, the total number of visitors, uh, because frankly, not everything is, is great for tourism. Um, and for different ages of kids, it's maybe more or less appropriate or useful pedagogically to have, um, you know, basically they're, they're on top of a building in the middle of New York city. Um, so that, that makes total sense. And yeah, that there's sort of safety measures that, that are redundancies that, that are costly and, and whatnot. But, but yeah, where I was going with that is like the research, I, I think, you know, some of the, so that's even another one, right? There's engineering and there's science kind of questions that are being answered. That's kind of getting into like policy questions where there are probably best practices that'll emerge or like different toolkits that seem appropriate. 
Um, but I think one of the other ones is uh, is just yeah, what's effective ped- pedagogically, right? So getting at like what inspires kids and how do they use green roofs in different ways. Um, and one of the things I've enjoyed over the the having gone to Kingsland several years, several, many summers in a row now, is just seeing the different kinds of activity and the different responses, like bringing new friends every time um, to a green roof you know, on, on Newtown Creek, on the East River, basically, that's kind of overlooking the city. It's kind of in the middle of nowhere. You know, it's kind of in an industrial zone. And while it's very beautiful and it's there as a pollinator and bird sanctuary specifically, um, it isn't immediately apparent sometimes, like when they have a party, like where you're supposed to go or what you're supposed to do. And there's an interesting kind of architectural confusion. I feel like we're very used to, especially in New York, where space is very tight, you kind of know what spaces tend to be for. Uh, and I, I always find it interesting that roofs fall into these kind of um, these these sort of extra, you know, these supernumerary spaces where people don't really know sort of how to comport themselves, even even you know adults, right? Um, so I don't know. Just I guess if you have any any last thoughts on sort of um, how you've seen maybe any good stories of like kids learning things on a green roof or or any inspiration you take from sort of you know the next generation, trying to end on a little bit of a positive note here. But yeah, uh, <laughs> well I can actually. So I mean I would say. Um, having the green roof on the school and just multiple, you know, many, many kids going through. Um, one of my former students, he's a senior in high school now, Ajani Stella. Uh, he started a nonprofit, Kids Fight Climate Change, and he's actually getting an award in a couple weeks. I mean, this kid is amazing. And he credits the green roof as his start to climate activism, um, And I have another student who helped me with research recently. She was trying to put a green roof on her high school. So I think um, exposing children at a young age to some of these technologies really makes it matter of fact, like, oh, my school had a green roof. What's the big deal? You know, it's amazing up there. So, you know, we're just giving them these opportunities to experience something and it's just very natural for them. So as they attrition up through middle school, high school, college, um, it's just part of their DNA. So that's why we need to provide these really for any student, but definitely the youngest students. Um, so they have these opportunities to learn and then take it with them. So they can be the change makers that we need right now. Yeah, that's great. So, so making, um, spaces where they can not only, you know, experience, um, hopefully horticulture and agriculture in an urban context, but at least, you know, plants and green things, maybe hopefully they see and understand there's fungi, there's nematodes, there's, there's many linked, you know, things in the ecosystem. Um, but specifically in an urban context and they can see it integrated into edifices and into the flow of goods and people through, um, a, a dense metropolis. So it's not sort of, well, that's only something that happens out there in some, you know, rural space I never go to, or I go to once in a while. Um, so I think that's really important. But then also you've made um, several times clear that there's this explicit link to be made between their own schools and climate disruption and, and ways they can um, fight back, the ways they, they can you know adapt or, or look at the actual structural causes of anthropogenic you know, climate disruption. And so they can maybe use um, you know, the green roof as, as a, a starting place to just begin to get the gear spinning. So uh, you know, I take some pleasure in that. So I think we're gonna we're gonna have to wrap up really soon. But um, Vicky, I'm wondering if you have um, time for just some 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 quick final questions about food and ag that are just kind of for fun that we like to ask. Yeah, bring it on. Okay. 
Well, um, I think the one that we always ask, um, which I'll, I'll, instead of ending with, I'm going to ask first, is uh, what's what's the best pizza in New York? Or if you don't want to say best, then you know what's what's your favorite go-to slice? <laughs> All right, so my go-to slice is after I go to the gym, the YMCA on 14th Street. I my husband and I usually go to Little Italy Pizza on University between 13th and 14th, and we like it. It's thin crust. They use, uh, you know, that's semolina on the bottom. It's got like a nice crunch, and it doesn't droop, and it's not greasy. So that's kind of our go-to pizza in the neighborhood. I should probably go there, though, before I go to the gym, not after the gym. But that's another story. <laughs> well, you've raised your, like, metabolism or whatever, right? Uh, so <laughs> makes sense. Um Great. Well, uh, another one is, are you growing anything now? You know, do you have a garden at windowsill garden or a, a community garden or anything like that at, at home? And, and if so, what are you growing? What do you like to grow in general? Um, uh, well, I, unfortunately I have a little tiny patch in front of my building, but it's nothing's food related. There's actually a rat that lives in there that I got to get rid of. Um, but at the school, we do have a lower level school garden and we really focus on which I take care of once again. And, um, we, we really focus on herbs, uh, basil, tomatoes, things like that, because it's very hard. Um, you know, if you want kids to sample things, you know, you get like one cucumber and like, okay, we're going to cut this in 30 pieces. So when you grow basil and things like mint, you can get more bang for your buck. And then I'm all about native plants. I mean, we have a lot of milkweed on the roof, um, New York natives, so that's kind of where my my real heart is. Yeah, no, we we're big fans of native plants, um, and that makes sense. Yeah, I hadn't thought about it, but right, even if you have one a nice big watermelon, it's like less interesting for a kid to get a slice of that as opposed to their own sprig of basil or, or something. So, um, yeah, again, it's it's different thinking about the different audiences for for sort of um, doing urban agriculture in various ways. Um, and uh, I guess final question um, would be. Ooh, what's, uh, I, I had something in my head, but I, but I kind of lost it. Um, I guess, uh, I, I'm, I'm, I'll just leave it to you. If you, if you have any final thoughts, um, that you want to leave us with any, any, anything that, uh, I don't know, like the best thing you saw outside in nature this summer Any anything kind of inspiring, uh, that we haven't covered that you want to, you know, end the show with. Ooh, that's tough. Um, I would say that, just creating these green spaces, no matter where they are. I mean, I know that there's this whole movement now for pocket gardens, which I find really cool, uh, where they're just taking really small plots of land and planting as many native species as they can in a really small environment. Um, it's based on a Japanese method of gardening. And They've found, you know, so much wildlife will just come to that little area. Um, And if we're doing that, we're creating these stepping stones for migrating or local species. Um, So, you know, for me, it's just do what you can. I mean, the whole climate emergency is really overwhelming for people and it's frightening. Um, But I think whatever we can do, whether it's small or something bigger, it's meaningful. And maybe it'll take some of the anxiety that I think we all might share and just feel like you're doing something, um, even though it's something small. And I I will add one more final point that I do love, love the, uh, composting bins. I'm in Manhattan, so we don't have 
curbside composting, but they have the composting receptacles on different corners and you get the app and you, you know, open up the bin and you drop your stuff off. I have to say like, that's like, I feel so great about that now where again, something meaningful, I could never lug my scraps to the farmer's market, but there's one like right actually on the corner of PS 41, they have a, a receptacle. So I save up my stuff in my freezer, I dump it off. And I really feel like I'm doing something positive again, even if it's small, I feel like I'm making a little bit of a difference. Yeah. And it makes sense, you know, actually thinking about the role schools play because schools are in basically every community. And you could also say this about, you know, various kinds of community centers, maybe faith-based organizations, et cetera. Like where, where are their footprints? Probably grocery stores too. If we had partnerships um, that could help the city with some of these infrastructural problems of, okay, well, you know, how many, how many um, trucks do you need going where, how often to pick up how much compost to actually be, making a difference and not sort of adding carbon because you're adding more trucks, um, which has been one of the arguments against the bins in for every, for every building. So there's been a fight about like how to determine what is the right way to do composting. But uh, it, it hadn't occurred to me, but maybe like integrating, you know, go to the nearest school. There's schools right near us. It's the same as voting, you know, use them for different civic reasons. Um, and I, I think that could be another way to sort of um, think about the, the fact that we have lots of little schools everywhere in, in New York, at least. And the, they, they do play a role already in, in bringing the, communities together, but, you know, how can we, um, maximize, you know, the utility and, and really get people thinking about the environment? Um, so I think obviously green roofs is only one piece of that. And you're bringing up that there's, there's others like composting. So thanks yeah. for that inspiration. Um, thanks for the yeah. idea of, you know, pocket gardening. We should have a whole episode on that. Yeah. And, um, Vicki, uh, you know, definitely be in touch and let us know if you're, if you're doing anything else, if there's any cool green roof events coming up that we can plug, um, and, uh, let us know how people can find you. We'll link to it, you know, on, on our site and, uh, thank you so much for, for your time. Really appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you. It was real a pleasure and thank you for all you're doing. Hey, thank you. Um, okay. Well, this has been fields, the unfinished story of urban agriculture on heritage radio network. Uh, and thank you all everyone for listening. Happy planting, happy winter. Fields is powered by Riverside. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradio.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. And thanks for listening.